0: Okay. Hi, oh, hi. Maxine, Do you have uh, that?
1: Uh, do you have the? Is it up on the chat?
2: Uh, not quite yet. I've just been. Uh, I, 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 yeah. Um, Can you put that up right now? I'll, okay. Could you, could you put that
1: up right now, please?
2: Yeah. Um. Okay. It's the same as last week, right?
1: Correct. Okay. Great. Okay.
3: And...
0: Uh, okay, so
2: good evening, everyone. We're really happy to be learning with all of you again. Um, so we're back uh, for the second session of uh, Le David, a song of doubt with uh, Professor Benjamin Summer. Um, as everyone's coming in, I'm going to be inviting you to join as a panelist. Um, That means that we'll uh, get to see your uh, lovely faces and you'll be able to unmute yourself um, when Professor Summer pauses for questions. Um, That being said, uh, please keep yourself um, on mute when uh, you're not speaking and if any questions come up um, in between pauses, you can put them in the chat either here or on Facebook Live um, and we will get back to those. So tonight we'll be continuing our close look in English and Hebrew at Psalm 27. Um, Last week opened up a lot of um, different channels and ideas for a lot of us. So I'm excited to see uh, where this takes us this time. A quick reminder, uh, yeah, we're not gonna be screen sharing. So I have put the uh, links to um, the text in the chat. So feel free to look at those on your own screen.
1: Thank you, Maxine. Uh, and thank you, everybody. It's nice to see people again. Let me just adjust my, let me just adjust this here. Uh, so last week, um, we were going through this poem uh, line by line. We were attempting to, um, uh, we were attempting to just get a sense, especially of some uh, of details in particular of the line structure. Um, remember I said that when we're reading ancient Hebrew poetry, it gets a little bit uh, difficult uh, what, compared to reading modern poetry because the the editions that we have from the Middle Ages, from antiquity, don't lay out the lines for us. So we've got to stop and think about the lines. So I, I was p- paying some attention um, to how we divide each line into its two or three constituent parts. And I tended to call those constituent parts uh, I, I tended to call them uh, versets. Um, we also were paying attention to just very, very specific information about some of the phrasing and how exactly we can translate these uh, these, uh, these lines. And we had gotten up to, actually, I think we had gotten up to about verse eight, if I'm not mistaken. Does, does someone happen to remember? Um, anyone have, have, have a recollection? It was towards the end. Okay, hello. Um uh so I'm gonna I'm gonna start up again from about let's say um um let's I'm gonna start up at about verse 10. Um and I will keep on reading. Um I'm gonna just make some comments on these last few verses, and then I want to start talking about the structure of the poem as a whole and how thinking about the lines the, the um the lines structure, the structure of the individual lines. Helps us to think about the structure of the entire poem, and then how thinking about the structure of the entire poem helps to unlock what I think is the, the very, very interesting theological message of the poem. Let me start though with with verse ten. Ki avi azavuni vadonaya asveni. Verse ten, we can render that indeed, my father and my mother abandoned me or maybe left me I actually I, I don't like my translation of abandon I think maybe left me would be a better translation um, so let me try it that way indeed my father and my mother left me but it is Hashem who takes me in um, the reason I, I, I actually I don't like what I myself wrote there uh, with abandon me uh, is that I think the idea here isn't so much. Um, literally abandonment by a parent, but rather um, the possibility that the parents uh, the parents have died. It's just typical that parents leave children, not deliberately. I mean, th- that does rarely happen. Abandonment does happen. Um, but I think that the idea here more likely uh, is simply the fact that uh, at some point one has to make do without that most supportive uh, of relationships uh, when one's parents die. Um, Indeed, my father and my mother left me, but it is Hashem who takes me in. Uh, verse eleven, Horeni Hashem um, darkecha, unecheni mishor lemaan shorarai. Parent me, Hashem, teaching me your path, and lead me on a level road while my foes look on. Um, I translate the word horeni twice, some of you who have strong Hebrew might notice. In my translation of of, line, of verse 11, that first verset has been rendered, parent me, Hashem, teaching me your path. So I've translated horeni um, uh, uh, both as parent me and teach me. Literally speaking, the verb horeni is an imperative verb, For those of you who are uh, who are into dikduk, uh, know that this is a hifiel imperative verb from the Shoresh yud resh That Shoresh or verbal root yud resh is the root that gives us the verb l'horot, which is what we've got here, which means to teach. That's the, the root that gives us the word moreh and mora which mean teacher. Uh, it's the word that um, also gives us the, uh, it's the verbal root that gives us the word Torah, Torah often translated as law, but literally, uh, Torah really means guidance. Torah is something that sends you in a particular direction. Um, so, fundamentally, the word "horeni" means "teach me your path." But the word "horeni" reminds us of the Hebrew word "hore" or horim. Um, "Hore" means parents, a uh, parent in the singular. Horim means parents in the plural. Um, now, etymologically, actually, the word parents, hore or horim in the, in the plural, is not actually related to the verb that means to teach. Um, hore comes from the, sh- the shorash or the verbal root he, resh, he, um, whereas the verb to teach is the hiphil form from the root yud resh he. So etymologically, these are two different words, but they do sound similar. Once yud resh he, the verb t- to teach, goes into the hyphial form, um, it sounds a lot like the word for parent. And I think that coming right after verse 10, which mentions parents, which mentions mother and father um, being gone and God taking their place, Given that we're following that verse, I think that the verb horani is hinting at the idea of parents, even as it literally means uh, teach. Uh, and that's why I've translated it this way. Parent me, Hashem, teaching me your path. Um, and then lead me on a level road. Um, maybe in the, in the modern world, that that image isn't as clear to us or it's not quite as important to us. Um, but in the ancient world where they didn't have asphalt and they didn't have steam rollers that make a, a smooth road, uh, road. Um, and where there weren't um, you know shock uh, shock absorbers and, and so forth, um, roads were bumpy, and when you found a road that was less bumpy, it was more pleasant to walk on, um, or if you were in, let's say, in some sort of cart, to ride on. Um, and hence the, the, the idea of a level road probably is much more prominent in biblical poetry than it would be for us. Um, moving on to verse twelve, Altittanni beneficed Sarai. Ki vi ede shaker Don't feed me to my enemies. Yes, lying witnesses rise against me with unfair, violent testimony. That phrase, "Don't feed me to my enemies," um, is an interesting one. It could be. It could really mean simply, "Don't give me over to what my enemies desire." The word in Hebrew, nefesh al titaneni sarai, don't give me over into the nefesh of my enemies. Nefesh can mean desire, will, what a person wants. So this could be translated, as I note in the footnote, don't give me over to what my enemies desire. In other words, don't let my enemies desire to prevail over me. They want to defeat me or worse. Uh, don't let that happen. Um, Nefesh, though, also can mean life, and it can literally mean throat or gullet, where where life comes in and out because we're breathing. Nefesh can also mean breath. Um, and so if it's that sense of where breath comes in and out, uh, it can also have a basic meaning of nef- uh, uh, of uh, throat, and therefore don't put me into the throat of my enemies could be translated rather literally, rather gorily as don't feed me to my enemies. You'll remember that earlier on in the poem, in verse two, which we discussed last week, we saw that the words le'ehol um, et um could be seen could be interpreted in two different ways. Um, to eat somebody's flesh could be interpreted literally as a, as an image of cannibalism, of extreme violence against a person. But it's also in several ancient Semitic languages, and we know certainly in Aramaic and in Akkadian, perhaps also in Hebrew, it can also be an idiom that means to slander somebody, and in Akkadian, um, to speak against somebody in a courtroom, uh, to speak against somebody in in a legal proceeding. So it's interesting to me that that ambiguity in verse 2 links up with the ambiguity that we see here in verse Twelve. In verse twelve, well, if in verse two we understood this phrase literally to refer to physical violence or even cannibalism, then we could understand "al titaneni benefesh sarai" in verse twelve to mean "don't feed me to my enemies." It's getting back to that extreme image of physical violence, um, literally of cannibalism, back in verse two. On the other hand, if in verse two we understand the word to mean slander. Then in verse 12, I think we could translate this as don't give give me over to my enemies' desires. Don't let my enemy's um, desire prevail over me. They're saying false things about me. They're talking against me, maybe in a court setting, maybe in, in a legal proceeding. Don't let them win the case. Don't let them or don't let their slander become well known. I actually see here, actually, I never noticed this until just this moment, that I think uh, I don't like the way that I've translated verse two in relation to 12. Um, Having gone with slander for in verse two, I should actually in verse 12 have gone with what the footnote presents. In other words, having this because those two verses really create an ambiguity that goes either this way or that way. uh, in the main text, I should have gone consistently in one way and then in the footnotes the other way. I just noticed that uh, I'm being inconsistent. I've got one possibility in the main text above, but the corresponding possibility is in the footnote for verse 12 below um, and vice versa. Um, uh, so uh, too late now, I guess. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I should fix this after, uh, after, after our class is over. Um, verse uh, 13, let's just finish up the actual text. Were it not for the fact that I believe that I shall see Hashem's own virtue while still alive, dot, dot, dot. This is a really interesting verse because this verse is, um, because this verse is, actually a sentence fragment, or to speak more precisely, this verse has a, um, this is a, you might say an if kind of a clause, it's a relative clause, and then there's no main clause. Um, We can understand, that is, this person starts a sentence, the speaker starts a sentence, but doesn't finish it. And I think we understand what, what the idea is. The idea is something like, were it not for the fact that I believe that I would see Hashem's own virtue while still alive, I wouldn't be able to go on. I'd be a basket case. My life would be a complete mess. Something like that. But it's interesting to me that the, the speaker doesn't finish the thought. We'll come back to why that might be. It's interesting to me that the speaker begins a sentence and doesn't end it. Um, and then we get the last uh, the last verse, also the last poetic line. al Hashem, chazak via libecha v'kavei Hashem. Um, Hope that Hashem will come. Courage, let your mind be strong and hope that Hashem will come. Um, Okay, let's, um, we've gone through the whole text. We finished our first session. So now we can begin the second session. Uh, I'd like to ask the question, how many stanzas do we have in this poem? Where do they begin and end? And how do we know that? How do we know that? And I'd like to suggest um, an answer, which is that this poem has, th- has three sections, um, two stanzas and then a conclusion, or you could say two stanzas and then a very, very brief stanza at the end. And there are several reasons that I'd like to suggest that this poem has three stanzas. One of them is actually visible to the eye, whether you're looking at the Hebrew or you're looking at the English. Um, And that is that we see in this poem an alternation between two-part lines and three-part lines. Um, Biblical Hebrew poetry is, is always built from lines. Those lines typically have two parts, but frequently have three. In this poem, we're going back and forth between them. And there are quite a number of biblical poems in which the movement from a two-part line to a three-part line indicates that we're at a stanza break, indicates that here's a boundary. This is a boundary between one part and the next part. And I think that that's going on in this poem. That also happens, just to give a few examples, that happens in Psalm 19. It happens in Psalms uh, nine and 10. Uh, there's, There's a whole bunch of Psalms. Actually, Professor Robert Gordas Zeron uh, Levracha, who taught uh, at uh, the Jewish Theological Seminary in the middle part of the 20th century, he wrote an article in Jewish Quarterly Review pointing out, um, um, pointing out among other things, uh, the existence of this phenomenon. and it's been laid, subsequently was noted by a number of, the, of other biblical scholars as well. So I think, first of all, that the stanzas suggest that the, the, the presence of three-part lines suggests that we've got a break at the end of verse six, and that a new stanza begins at the beginning of seven, then we get another break where we get th- four three-part lines in a, in a row. I think the first one of them is, or maybe the first two is in, are indicating, excuse me, the end of the second stanza. So the second stanza probably ends at about verse 12. And then we've got a concluding section that consists only of three-part lines, that is to say two three-part lines in a row in verses 13 and 14. Now, so far, this is just a theory. I've given one reason to suggest that we've got three different sections, and that's the the presence of these longer lines. Um, But that on its own doesn't really prove anything. There are other biblical poems where we just go back and forth between two-part lines and three-part lines, basically randomly. So at this point, this is only a theory. But let me make another point. Um, What I'm calling the first stanza always refers to God in the third person. In the first stanza, the speaker talks about God. But in the first stanza, the speaker never speaks to God. When we get to the literally the first word of what I'm claiming is the second stanza, the word shema in verse 7, listen, here, um, then suddenly we are addressing, the uh, or the speaker is addressing God in the second person. The speaker is no longer t- talking about God, now the speaker is talking to God, and that remains the case consistently um, through, um, at least through most of this stanza, um, through through the end of verse 9. It switches quickly in verse 10, but goes back to second person in verses 11 and 12. And then in verse 13, um, we get an interesting mix. We go back to a third person reference to God uh, in verse 13. Again, the speaker is talking about God. And then in verse 14 we actually again get an imperative verb so that's a verb a second person verb it's speaking to somebody but here all of a sudden it's speaking it seems to be speaking to the speaker of the psalm that is the word "kave" and chazak um, hope and be strong um, those are spoken to the the worshiper we might wonder is it the case that here the worshiper is speaking kind of to himself or to herself um or is it that there's suddenly another voice in the psalm sometimes in the psalms there is more than one speaker there's more than one's voice um psalm 91 is a great example of that Uh, for those of you familiar with the friday night i'm sorry the saturday night ma'ariv service uh, on saturday night we add psalm 91 um, to the regular Maori service, and that's a psalm that just goes back and forth between different voices. And, uh, unless you figure out who the different speakers are, basically the psalm makes no sense. Um, there are other psalms where it may be the case. It's, uh, there, there is a theory here. Oh, oh, let me just turn that phone off. Um, sorry about that. Um, there are other cases um, in which, um, in the Book of Psalms, where it would appear to be the case that a A prophet in the temple, or maybe a Levite on the temple staff, is addressing the worshiper. Most of the psalm is spoken in the voice of a person who is pleading for something, but uh, at at some points at the end or in the middle of the psalm, there seems to be an address to the, the, the worshiper, an address in which somebody is is conveying a divine message to the to the worshiper, to the person petitioning. So maybe that's going on here. Maybe a prophet or a Levite in the temple is responding to the person who recites this Psalm. And the truth is, I don't think we have to decide between these two possibilities. This last line, um, it may be that in some temples in ancient Israel or at some historical periods in, in ancient Israel, um, a worshiper would recite the entire psalm, including the last line in which the worshiper is sort of addressing himself or addressing herself. Um, or, and it may be that at other times or in other temples, uh, other Levites um, would have worshippers say the psalm up until verse 13. And then the Levites or a temple prophet would proclaim a message of hope to, to the worshiper. It, it, it's, it's not an either or. It could be a, a both and. Um In any event, in this last section of the poem, verses thirteen and fourteen, um we go back to the third person um to refer to God, and then there's a second person addressing the the, the speaker um the worshiper himself or herself um and, and by the way I, I I keep on saying him him or her himself or herself, because um prayer in ancient Israel was not gendered to be a priest in ancient Israel to officiate at the altar when sacrifices were being performed at the altar, you had to be a male, and you had to be a male from a specific family. The vast majority of males could not have that job. Um, but we know that prayers were recited by both men and women. Prayers even at the temple were recited by women. Uh, the story of Hannah, which we'll be reading uh, in just a, just over a week on Rosh Hashanah as an example, since Hannah recites a Psalm um, in First Samuel chapter two, Uh, There are other cases uh, uh, elsewhere in the Bible. So prayer was not gendered. The Psalms could have been recited um, and and were recited by both men and women. In any event, um, we see see that there's a movement between stanzas, not only in terms of the three-part lines, but also in terms of the way that God is being discussed, Um, second person versus third person. And finally, um, the tone of the three sections um, of each section differs significantly from the other section. Um, I'm curious, maybe people could uh, either put into the chat or just briefly unmute yourselves. Um, what's the tone of the first stanza of what, what I'm describing as the first stanza? Uh, that is to say, verses one through six. Or if you had to give a one word title, or subtitle for the first stanza, or two or three word subtitle for the first stanza, what might it be? Some Thoughts here, do people want to put something into the chat? I'll open the chat just to see. Um, or Emily, uh, you've got an idea. Emily, can you uh, unmute yourself, or d- does somebody here have to unmute you?
4: Got it. Uh, take me too long to type into the chat. Um, what I wanted to say, a couple of thoughts uh, uh, came to mind. Number one, I would say, t- I, I can't think of a title offhand, but I think the tone of the first stanza is quite uh, confident. Uh, confident. Mm-hmm. Uh, confident. But uh, the speaker seems to lose a little bit of that confidence as the poem continues. Well, so Let's, let, let's pause on,
1: on, on the continuation. Let's just go stanza by stanza. So the first stanza... Um, confident is a great word for for the, um, uh, for the tone. I see Madeline has said the same thing and Madeline suggested, um, two different titles, maybe help is on the way (laughs) and, and invincible. I love them both. I especially love help is on the way because that's really vivid. Um, and, um, I would say though, that in a way, technically speaking, Invincible is even better, is even more accurate. Help is on the way is more vivid, but invincible is even more accurate uh, because I think in a lot of verse one, it's not even that that um, that the speaker needs help. The speaker is saying, you know, I've got the help. Everything's fine. Um, should something go wrong, it won't be a problem because God's going to hide me away Um inviolable in his sukai or in, in, um, you know, in his tent, in his temple, um, so that, uh, yeah, there, there's, it's there's tremendous, tremendous confidence here. I, um, I
0: actually have a, a mm-hmm. different, uh, take on it, mm-hmm. and that is it's, uh, it's along the lines of me thinks he does protest too much. Interesting. What the, the one word that I would think of is fear. In other words, he's in a state of fear and mimi um, ira, and he's trying hard to convince himself uh, that he has nothing to fear when the underlying tone is one of, oh my God, how am I going to get through this?
1: Interesting. Very, very interesting. Uh, so, uh, and Madeline then agrees with you. She put it to the chat, talking himself out of his fear. Um, Bonnie, you've got a comment also.
3: Yeah, I I think what Clem said is really true, but I think it gets even more obvious in the second half where you can feel the desperation right? Like, don't Not do you. this, don't do this. Like, the first stanza is, God will save me, I'm hoping, I'm putting, I'm thinking positive, I'm kind of manifesting positive, in the hopes that Hashem will be fair for me, but by the second stanza, it's beginning to turn, and those those negative thoughts, the images of being eaten, and all that kind of stuff, are showing up in a stronger way. Yeah,
1: so, yeah, great, um,
0: great. And again, great. The, the question is, is it external enemies, or are they internal enemies?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so let's move into the second stanza. Um, as Bonnie puts, puts it, it, it turns. And actually, I, I would say it, it's not just that it begins to turn. It, it turns incredibly abruptly at the vi- beginning of verse 7. At the beginning of verse 7, we go from at least a surface sense of confidence to real desperation. Uh, um hear my voice hashem I'm crying out, treat me with grace answer me um i'm i'm trying to find you um don't hide from me uh this this i'm trying to find your presence but but don't hide from me there's there's a real sense that God is currently hiding um don't push me away, don't abandon me um so that the 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 two different stanzas, um, uh, at least on the surface, uh, they move, I think, from confidence to fear, from extreme faith to uh, to doubt. Uh, And I wanna come back to some of Chaim and Bonnie's points, um, but Yael and and Emily are waiting. So uh, first Yael and then Emily. I
5: think they're all true. I think what's happening is we see the storms approaching, the storms of life. We know there are going to be hard times and we're gearing ourselves up to them, using our faith, using the resources of faith, saying these storms are happening. I see the tsunami on its way to me and God is going to hold me. Even if my parents are gone, even if everyone is is trying to harm me, there's something above all of this that I can't see that that is bigger than these waves that are coming and we're girding ourselves for that and I I think it's really appropriate that we're reading that right now because as we approach the high holy days in some ways it is like facing a storm we know we're going to go if we're, if we're on Zoom or if we're in person, we're going to go and we stand and say, Al chet. that's a really hard time. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a time where we're, we're almost down on our knees. You know, we get down on our knees, in fact, and we,
2: mm-hmm. we
5: grovel and we're thinking I'm dust. I've done all these sins. And that's a hard thing to walk through if you're not reinforced by the love of God that we can take with us through all of this
1: hmm Great, great. Um, Emily, then Lise, and then um then Michael.
0: Um.
1: Emily, are you uh un unmuting?
4: Sorry about that. Um I think he's also losing in confidence in himself because it says, don't thrust your servant away in anger. Well, he must be concerned what, why is why should God be angry at him? So he knows something that he hasn't fully expressed yet. Uh, and that might be uh, the doubts that are sort of the subtext of the of the of the of the confidence. And secondly, I wanted to say uh, that uh, before you asked, that um, stanza, uh stanza verse 13 he doesn't complete the sentence i think he's afraid to complete the sentence because oh my he can't even utter the the horror of of what that would mean so he reverts exactly. to i i will i will revert to my hope in you
1: yeah, I, I think that's a really, that, that's a great point. It, it's really important to see that in verse 13, he, he can't bring himself to finish the sentence. Right. Um, that's, he, he's gone too close to a really, really raw place. And that's why we just get dot, dot, dot. In, in a sense, that dot, dot, dot is, is one of the most eloquent parts of, of the poem. Uh, when we read it in Shul and we're, you know, we're kind of in a rush at the end of Shakri, You know, we totally lose this. Uh, but to really read this correctly, you've got to say and then you've got to let that silence stay there. Yeah, that, that, I think that's a really, really great point. Uh, great point, Emily. Um, Lise, can you remind me, is it Lise or Lisa? It's Lisa. Lisa. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Good um, seeing you again. Nice to yes, see you. Nice
5: to see you. Um, so I'm struck by the how this word hiding has now flipped. So in mm, mm-hmm. answer one, he's oh, okay. being hidden, and now God is hiding. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. if you have to hide, even if God is hiding you, I think if you have to hide, you're still not safe.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that comes back to a point that Chaim was making um, and that Bonnie was hey. making, which is that the in, initially... initially the first stanza is totally confident and the second stanza is really quite desperate but as you read more closely um, the three of you are pointing out you know even the first stanza has some intimations of desperation you don't state this kind of confidence so, so strongly unless there's something that's threatening you um and so as as Chaim put it, I think it was a Chaim or I can't remember. Um, he's protesting too much. Uh and I think that we see that there's actually, even though stanza one and stanza two seem to be almost opposites of each other, stanza one has the seeds of stanza two within it. Um and are there any elements of stanza two? You know, mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: hi. I don't mean to be contrarian, but I, I, I really don't, I see something totally different in that second stanza. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I see the stanza of Shema Shem Koli and the rest of it as a turning point that is the answer to the fear and the the sort of the neutrality uh, of of the fear of not addressing God, but rather the turning point in Shema Shem Koli Ekra V'chaneni and that in fact, that's the beginning of the solution uh, to, uh, uh, to his fear. Um, and and it, it's a statement, I, I mean, I see it as a very positive thing as opposed mm. to desperation. To me, it's, it's uh, even if I have loss mm. and, and I, even if I have I, whatever, I've got God.
1: Gotcha. I, I want to come back to that point, Chaim, but Michael's been waiting. I don't know where Michael went. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, where's Michael? Did we lose Michael? Oh, dear. Uh, uh, there was another hand up, that there there's a little yellow thing. Unfortunately, I think we, we lost Michael. Um, so um, I wanted to take three more comments and then I want to sort of start summing up and, and also the, looking at that last, um, the last two lines. Uh, so uh, Emily again, then Bonnie, then Lisa.
4: Excuse me, I, I don't really know why that hand is up because I, I didn't want to say. Ah, okay. The gotcha, person okay. next to me is, has her hand up.
1: Okay, uh, uh, Bonnie, great.
4: Bonnie, right, right.
3: Okay, cool. Um, I also think there's a change of language in the second stanza. It feels more to me, more kind of traditional. I'm going to say tefillah, um, biblical language, anenu, bakasha, you know, that I'm going to cry and God will answer. The language there feels to me a little bit stronger in the using of the kind of biblical phrases, That even though I know there is some in the first, right? But the first is like, you know, that's a really lovely, beautiful, poetic line. It's not the desperation of I'm crying out, and I want God um, to hear me. And I just think it's really striking that the stanza begins with the word Shema, right? Mm-hmm. And it's Shema Hashem, like we're used to hearing it the other way, Shema Yisrael, right? And there's a, a quite a deliberate flip that he's really, he or whoever is really not sure if anybody is listening. If anybody Mm -hmm. is coming, is going to hear him. So the language of this is just getting more and more intense and hearkening back to what I'm going to call, you know, to me, this feels like a very kind of traditional sort of Yom Kippur-ish in that kind of sense of the language of what's happening in the second stanza.
1: Mm -hmm. Great, great. And Lisa?
5: Um, So there's also, I mean, unlike in other Psalms where God smites enemies, God is not doing any smiting here you know this is a very chronic problem um this problem does not seem to be going away you know he's he's ostensibly going to be hidden forever and i i'm thinking that perhaps that's why that's that leads to the ambiguity of that verse 13 there's no resolution in this song
1: interesting no resolution i want to come back to that idea very very interesting um and um yeah, as Bonnie points out, the that the middle stanza sounds familiar, especially the the the, the request for grace, Choneni uh, very much part of liturgy of this of this time of year. Um, treat, treat us with great grace, answer us. Um, that's what we're saying, you know, in Slichot throughout aseret Yimei and then especially on Yom Kippur. Um, so, drawing, let me draw a, a few of these, um, uh, uh, many of these observations together. On the surface, I think that we've got two very different stanzas the stanza about confidence and then the stanza of desperation, the stanza that's full of trust, faith, bitahon, and the stanza that's full of petition, uh, the bakasha. Um, but as a number of people have been noticing, There are elements of the other. uh, uh, There are elements of the second stanza in the first stanza, and there are elements of the first in the second. Um, The the first stanza uh, is stating the confidence with such with with such force that I think that we're we're justified in thinking that there, there there's something beneath there. There's something underneath this insistent confidence. If you're so insistent about your confidence. It probably means that there's something making you question your confidence. I don't remember, it, it, I don't know if people remember, but last week I also talked about how verse two is sort of surprising. The second line of verse two reads, Saraiva hima Hema Hashaluvalu. And I mentioned last time um, that this is an odd biblical line because it's not, it, it could easily have classical. A, B, C, A prime, B prime, C prime parallelism um, in which each of the two versets would make a complete statement. That's very typical of biblical poetry, that a single verset makes a single short statement. And then the second verset echoes that statement, sometimes like almost word by word, just using synonyms. And we could rearrange these words to make it into a typical biblical verset. Sarai kashalu, um, My enemies stumbled and my foes fell down. That would be a very typical biblical Hebrew poetic line. By putting the two subjects in the first line and the two predicates, the two verbs in the second line, the, the line creates a little bit of suspense. We're not sure what the tsarai and oivai, what the enemies and the foes are going to do. Are they going to lash out at me? Are they going to cause me to suffer? Well, no, it turns out that we get to the second verset, and no they're the ones who have problems, not me um but the but if if you wanted to be you know immediately confident, it would have been better to have a more typical biblical line with a subject and a predicate, and then the second verset would have another subject and a, a parallel subject and a parallel predicate by putting the subjects first and then the predicate second, which is actually as I say unusual. This is a case of, if any of you are very into poetry, this is a case of enjambment and poetry, Hebrew, ancient Hebrew poetry tends not to use enjambment. Um, by doing it this way, there is a little bit of anxiety that, that is raised up at the beginning of this line in the second part of verse two, and then is put back down. But that anxiety is in fact there. Um, and similarly, when we get to the second stanza, there's a, a tone of desperation Um, But as Chaim is pointing out, the very fact that starting in literally the first word of the second stanza, the speaker is turning to God for help, means that the speaker has some expectation that God will listen and that God has the ability to help. So the bedrock underlying this desperation stanza is in fact, some sense of, of confidence, some sense of bitachon. The person's not nihilistically desperate. The person's desperate, but knows where to turn for help. And in that sense, the second stanza is maybe a little, has seeds of the first stanza, just as the first stanza has seeds of the second. Going to the concluding section, and especially that very last line, I think that, um, We now go to sort of a third place, which is maybe a synthesis of the first two. Um, The idea of hope, the idea of becoming strong. And then again, uh, the, the word hope showing up in the third verset of this concluding line. Hope is somewhere between desperation and trust. Closer to trust, but I think not quite the same thing as full fledged confidence or trust. Trust or confidence, I think, means that you know we know everything's going to be fine, everything is fine. Um, hope means that we have a realistic expectations that things may become fine. It's not quite as strong as bitachon. Um I think Tikva is not quite as strong as bitachon, but it's on the it's on the way there. And so i I think when we go through the three stanzas of this poem, we see that this poem is taking us on a journey from extraordinary confidence, which maybe belies a lack of confidence, through desperation, which still is, it still is um, rooted in some f- form of, of, of faith, into hope, a less than full confidence, um, but some expectation that things can become better. And, and the, this journey is interesting, I think, in, especially in, in two ways. Um, first of all, I, I think this is very, very significant. The order in which these stanzas appear is not the order in which we might've expected them to appear. Um, that is to say, it doesn't, the, the, the stanzas don't go in what we might've thought of as the conventional religious order. This is not a poem that brings us from doubt to faith. It's actually a poem that brings us from faith to doubt, um, and then from doubt to hope. Um, We're not going, we're not ascending a ladder of conventional piety. This is a more complex, and dare I say, a more mature form of piety that we're getting in Psalm 27. Um, in, in fact, I think we, we might even go a little bit further. There's a scholar, uh, there was a scholar named Gerald Blitzstein, uh, Yaakov Blitzstein. I don't know if some of you might've known him. I think he was originally, might've been from New York. aliyah. was a professor at uh, Ben-Gurion University in Jewish thought for many, many years. In one of his earliest essays, which ap- appeared in the Yavna Magazine back in the sixties, I think he must've still been a graduate student or maybe a rabbinical student at Ritz at the time. He suggests that the first stanza is actually deeply problematic from a religious point of view. Um, I think he would go so far as to say the first stanza is the stanza that's full, not just of confidence and faith, but of hubris. The speaker in the first stanza thinks that he's got God in his, in his hip pocket. He knows exactly what God's going to do. Um, and in a sense, in the first stanza, God isn't even allowed to have any freedom because the speaker knows all about God. But it's also interesting to remember that that first stanza is the stanza that only talks about God in the third person. The speaker in the first stanza speaks about God as an academic subject that he's mastered, but he doesn't speak to God. He speaks about God, not to God. He doesn't address God. Um, God is a topic in the first stanza, a topic, you know, in which the speaker is gonna get an A, an A plus. Um, But the speaker in the first stanza is not yet in relationship with God. Then interestingly, when we move into the second stanza, it's only then that the speaker addresses addresses God. And the moment the speaker addresses God, the moment the speaker is in relationship with God, vulnerabilities come out a relationship is a whole different story than knowing a subject back and backwards and forwards. When you're in relationship, the other side of the relationship is not always predictable. That's true when we're dealing with human beings, all the more so when the other side of the relationship is a being of an entirely different order. And so relationship, moving from knowledge about into addressing, um, that move is a move that makes the speaker vulnerable. And as soon as the speaker makes that move, suddenly the insecurities, the fears, they come right out. And we end up having actually a much more realistic, much more adult sort of faith. The the faith, the religiosity, the piety of the first stanza, I dare say is a rather childish faith. It may be the sort of faith that people associate with deep religiosity, but really it's a form of shallow religiosity, um, which we can see from the fact that the speaker in this first stanza is only speaking about God. The second stanza is much, much more realistic. It is actually the case in the world that often God seems to be hiding God's face, God's face, that God's presence is palpable but not quite present. Um, And it's only in the second stanza that the speaker is acknowledging that fact. In the second stanza, we're getting into, I think, a a much deeper, a much more serious, but a rather more scary, more frightening form of piety, but a much more adult type of piety that then leads to uh, the hopeful, realistic, but not hubristic end of the psalm. The psalm, uh, that ending, that gets us into tikvah, that gets us into hope. Um, At the very, very end of the psalm, whoever is speaking to the worshiper, whoever is addressing the worshiper, whether it's a Levite, a a prophet, or the worshiper is addressing him or herself, at the end of the psalm, um, we don't have complete confidence. God's freedom is not being impinged by my hubris, but we do have hope. We do have some realistic expectation uh, that God, in some form, maybe not in the expected form, maybe not in the form that we would most have preferred, that God will become present. We don't know exactly when, we don't know exactly how, but we can hope that God will be present. So I, I think for, I think that Psalm 27 to me is really one of the one of the most theologically suggestive theologically significant texts in the entire Tanakh. It's not unique. There are other texts that do this as well, but I think that Psalm 27 is modeling for us a mature piety, and it's, it's showing us that what people think is the best form of piety may not be the best form of piety. It may be the most childish, the simplest, but also the most simplistic form of piety. And in Psalm 27, we're starting a journey that leads to a much more adult form of piety. I also think that it's very, very interesting that the Psalm ends on a note of hope rather than a note of victory. And in this respect, Psalm 27 reminds me of some other famous Jewish texts. First of all, Psalm 27 reminds me of the Chumash of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. The five books of Moses are remarkable in ancient literature because they don't end with the triumph of the human hero. The human hero, Moshe, um, doesn't achieve victory at the end of the five books of Moses. Instead of ending with triumph, the five books of Moses, spoiler alert, they end with the death of um, of the main character, rather than his victory. Um, but it's not just simply a death. It ends with him the moments before he dies, looking across the Jordan River um, at the promised land that he'll never enter, but he has a reasonable hope that his his successor, his sidekick is going to lead the people successfully into the promised land. Um, so the, the Torah, ends not with a note of, of victory, but with a note of of hope. Um, by the way, it's interesting just to, to speculate. What if the Torah kept on going? What if the book of Joshua were part of the Torah? And there is a theory. I, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but it's an interesting theory nonetheless. There is a theory among some scholars that maybe in antiquity, the Torah originally had six parts. And instead of a Pentateuch, there was a Hexateuch that ended at the end of the book of Joshua. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not. What I I think it's a theory that's worth thinking about simply because it suggests the possibility: What would Judaism be like if the Book of Joshua were part of the Torah? If we ended not with hope but with victory? Uh, there's a great biblical, a great biblical scholar uh, who taught actually across the street from JTS at the Union Theological Seminary, named James Sanders, uh, one of the great Protestant biblical scholars of the late 20th century. Uh, and Professor Sanders uh, suggested that, you know, if there had been a ex maybe the Jews wouldn't have survived all these years. Maybe the fact that their, their core religious book, the Torah, ended on a note of hope rather than victory allowed them to endure 2,000 years of exile. And maybe if the Torah had ended, as some scholars suggest was the case in antiquity, had ended with the book of Joshua they wouldn't have been able to handle the exile, that once they didn't have the victory, they would have fallen apart the way all other ancient peoples have fallen apart. Um, And so in ending on a note of hope, I think that Psalm 27 resembles the Torah and is reminding us of something that's really, really significant about the Torah. The other text that Psalm 27 reminds me of, the other significant Jewish text is Hatikva. Um, is the, the Zionist Anthem, which then later became, of, of course, the Israeli National Anthem. It's really quite interesting that the Zionist Anthem, the Israeli National Anthem, doesn't have the title, let's say, Hanitzahon, the victory, um, but rather has the title, um, the hope. Uh, there is something um, quite Psalm 27-ish about that choice of text um, as the Zionist anthem and as, as the Israeli national anthem. Um, so uh, I think that Psalm 27 is, is finally just one final comment here. It actually, to me, sort of sum, sums up the whole book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a remarkably varied anthology of religious poetry, of poetic prayers, some of them hymns of praise that are tremendously exuberant, some of them songs of thanksgiving that remember a recent threat a a recent problem that god has helped us to avert um some of them songs of crisis that are crying out for help Um, psalm 27 kind of takes us through these various moods and the order in which it does so i think is very very significant it doesn't end Um, exuberantly on a note of triumph, um, which would have been the easy way out, which would have been what um, the shallowest and most common form of religion does, but nor does it end sort of nihilistically or um, in despair, but in ending with hope, I think it models what a mature Jewish faith is supposed to look like um, and in that respect, it really resembles the book of Psalms as a whole, a book that I, I sometimes would give, I like giving the title, The Book of Faith and Doubt. Um, Psalm 27 is a, is a song that reminds us that doubt is an integral part of a healthy faith. A faith that has no doubt is a shallow doubt, is a pretend doubt, what Professor um, Blitzstein called an ersatz faith. Um, But a real serious faith, um, a mature Jewish faith, is a faith that encompasses doubt, gives room for doubt, um, and then, in some small way, moves beyond the doubt, however briefly at the end. Okay, we still, we have three minutes, so maybe we can just go a few minutes over. There are some hands that have been waiting, and there may be some other questions or comments. Uh, So, Madeline, I'm sorry, you've been waiting for quite a while. Uh, um, uh, Yes, Madeline.
6: So, I... I You've you made this beautiful case for those final lines as the as the anthem of hope. So I apologize for, for taking it in the opposite direction. Um, mm-hmm. but there's something disturbing that I feel about those final lines, that this is mm-hmm. line 13, is this moment of dot 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 despair. It's it's the true doubt, it's imagining if God is not actually going to show up, dot dot dot. And then and I, I, I'm playing it different ways in my head, depending, is this the person themselves? Is this an outside voice? But there's a silencing, there's a silencing, there's a command, no, hope. Hope is is you you have to cut off that thought. Um, and you could even, rather than pause in that silence, the sentence is coming out and then the hope just comes as, whoop, nope, quiet. We're gonna end this thing with a series of commands. You must hope. Um, you cannot go that far down, down the doubt spiral. Um, so in some sense, I, I feel like, like the final conclusion has these two forces both going strong, locked in each other and we don't yet have the synthesis. We have the, we have the two sides in struggle and that's where we end. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway. I hear,
1: I I hear what you're saying, things. but uh, but Madeline, I don't quite agree with your, re- your reading of verse 13. I don't think that verse 13 is a statement of despair. I mean, the verbal meaning of verse 13 is is the opposite. The person is saying, it is the case that I believe that I will see um, the, um, the, the arrival of, of God, or I believe I will see God's virtue in the land of the living. But while saying that, the person is also contemplating the opposite. The person says, if it weren't for the case that I believe, and I do believe, but if it weren't, gewalt. I'd be a basket case, and so by by saying, on the one hand, the person's asserting that that he or she believes, but on the other hand, the person's also entertaining the possibility that I might not believe.
6: I'm trying to vividly imagine, they're about to vividly imagine what would that world be, and that's when and
1: then, the voice and inside then a, or the
6: other voice shuts it down.
1: That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I yeah, see. So, so the way I'm reading it, and, and yeah. this is a case where there's there's no there's no one right or wrong answer i think there, as is often the case with good poetry and especially with performed poetry which is what this was in the ancient world where different performers might handle it differently might use a different tone of voice or a different melody or a different slightly different rhythm um but the way that i would read it is um that that the the speaker is entertaining that possibility is still saying it's more on the faith side of the ledger but is entertaining the possibility that I know what it would be like if I didn't have faith. And then that's just so scary that the speaker can't finish the sentence. I, I, I do think that that's, that's scary, but it's not quite the same as despair. I think that a lot would depend on how you read this out loud, how you perform this. If you perform this, you could perform this at the way that I'm suggesting with a dot, 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 with just a little bit of a pause with some silence and then we get the statement that you should have hope. On the other hand, you could also perform this in such a way that the person raises the possibility that I might not have hope though I do, and then the person just gets shut up. And, and so in other words, if at the end of verse 13, instead of a pause, the other voice comes in and just like, like speaks over the first speaker, that would be a much more negative way to end the poem. I'm, I'm thinking that we can end the poem with that pause at the end of 13, let, this, let the person go almost to the scary place. And then somebody, and it may even be the speaker himself or herself rather than an, an outside person, a Levite or a prophet, um, comes up with the idea of hope. I, I see what you're saying. I mean, as is the, often the case with great poetry, we could take it more than one direction. And, and especially like it depends on, like if you are a director and you're, you're telling an actor how to do this, if you're a director and you're, just, you're deciding whether there's gonna be one voice or two voices here, you could really take this in very, very different directions. Uh, and I think that, that that's really important to remember about the Psalms, that they were performed texts. They're not like a poem in the New Yorker, you know, where you, where you just read it. There were performers who did this in the temple and different performers might handle it differently. Um, but I do still see ending on a note of hope as being, positive in a useful way but no not so pollyannish not so you know insistently positive as to no longer be realistic to to people who have lived in in what's actually a very complex world where um god's presence isn't always obvious um time for a couple of other comments uh bonnie uh and then yael uh then emily Mm -hmm. yes bonnie Still trying to unmute. Go to another se- oh, We'll go on to Yael and we'll, we'll see if we can come back to you, Bonnie. Yael.
5: I'd like to reflect on what you said about this possibility of a sixth book of the Torah where Bnei Israel is entering the land. I think there's a strong parallel between the fact that we have not arrived at Zmana Mashiach. And so the Torah is often parallel with where we are. I don't know how it's gonna be in zmanah Mashiach, if they're gonna add more books to the Torah in order to reflect that, but for now, uh, even historically, and certainly currently, the five books of Moses, where he's looking into, he's looking from Mount Har- Harpisgah, and he sees the land, he sees this hope, this, this vision that we have for Zman Mashiach, but we're not there. And I think that's a helpful parallel.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, yeah, the, 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 the philosopher, uh, the Jewish philosopher Franz Rosenzweig um, has spoken about an asymptotic side of Judaism. Other modern Jewish philosophers have picked this up as well, um, that it's, it's, it's characteristic of Judaism that we're always getting closer to redemption um, but at least some some modern Jewish thinkers um, think that it's essential to Judaism that we never quite get there, and I think that that also that also reflects um, the fact that we're that we have a five book Torah and not a six book Torah. Um, even if we don't go as far as that idea, and we think that yes, yeah, someday we will get there, uh, the fact that we've got a five book Torah in the meantime. Makes it possible for us to stay on a journey and to realize that um, arriving at what you're arriving at where you're going isn't really always necessary. I mean, Moses was the you know, the greatest Jew um, of all time, not because he completed his task, but because he never desisted from his task. Um, this this idea, you know, reminds us of of the passage that I'm alluding to in Pirkei it's not your responsibility to finish the task uh, but you're not free to 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 not even try um, Moses was a hero not because he got there but because he always tried or, or pretty much always tried um yeah uh, two more comments before we we, we end um uh, Emily then Bonnie oh uh, four more okay Emily Bonnie uh, three more Emily Bonnie and then Chaim, and then um uh, and then we should we, we should finish up Emily
4: uh, i just wanted to say that um i don't think god is victorious either uh, at the end of um, of uh, Devarin, because he wants he gave us all these rules to behave a certain way and uh we don't know yet if we're gonna fail or not fail so even a, a, a god I mean there's Moshe on the one hand but if you're talking about uh, the, the the patterns of um, ancient epics of the uh uh, uh the, where the heroes uh, are victorious uh, I would say that that god is not victorious either that we don't know because after all it's hey yeah a share i will be what i will be and maybe that's about how it depends how the jews act the other thing i just wanted to say a paraphrase i don't remember the exact quote but rabbi uh, lord rabbi Sachs zechron uh, said about um hope that hope something like this hope is the victory of the improbable over the probable hmm. something along those lines
1: yes sir yes
4: sir i i i just love that that's
1: all. uh Bonnie,
3: yeah, I just want to say one thing. This is actually um, thanks to Madeline for talking about whether <laughs> verse twelve or thirteen, uh, uh, where the break is. I- I'm really bothered by the end of pasuk twelve, where it ends with the term Hamas. That, like, if that is really the break in the speakers and the voice and the answer from the Leviim, whatever we're calling it, it's like the the it opened. The whole um, psalm opened with God, with Adonai, and it went down to Hamas. Like, there is such a descent there, right? And then it says, like, okay, maybe. So,
1: I, mm-hmm. yeah. I, so this, I, I think the second stanza may end at the end of 12, but the, if there's another voice, the other voice doesn't come up until 14. Right. The speaker of 13 is still the speak, the main speaker of the psalm who's been speaking up until now. Oh,
3: the speaker is 13, right. Okay. Uh, okay. And then 14 is the end. Four- so then it ends with three, three part versets, which is just so, because I kept thinking about mm-hmm. where the divisions were within the speakers and the voices here, you mm-hmm. know, and it could be in a couple of different places there.
1: I think we could debate what, whether we want to yeah. end stanza two at the end of 12 or 13 Mm -hmm. but if there's another voice the the other it's definitely 14 yeah right it's definitely 14.
5: yeah
3: but there is really that descent that has gone down all the way to hamas and when you think about it
1: but then we then we rise back up again in 14 and even actually even in 13 um although the possibility of not having faith is being thought about the actual statement is the person does have faith. So I, I, I think right. you're right about the descent, but I think that the descent begins to to move to, to reverse itself in thirteen, and then more significantly, but not um, continues to move in the opposite direction in fourteen. Okay. Actually, uh-huh. yeah. one last comment, and then we should, uh, we, should we, we,
0: yeah. we should I I uh, I'm glad the last stanza begins with thirteen. Because it ends with the last previous stanza ends with Hamas. And then it's Lulehemanti. It's no longer Shema. It is, were it not for my faith? And the answer to that is Lirot B'Tuv, Hashem. To see the good. To me, I hear it as the saying, Miha Isha Chaim, The answer is uh what what is it? Uh, a um uh, uh, it's, so. it's not that that's part of the question, it's the answer to that. And I, I see, and again, you can read it every which way, you know, but to me, is not someone else saying it, but rather me saying to myself, I believe, and yes, that hope is going to get me through. I'm saying to myself, in in as a way of to entreat myself. Despite the Hamas of the end of the last uh stanza with hope and with uh, uh that you can sort of uh you can have some uh you can have some strength
1: Afe, a good place to uh a good place to, to to conclude um so i hope that i have um made our daily reading of this psalm at this time of year uh a little bit richer uh, and I hope that I've also given a sense of uh, how this psalm and I think um, the book of Psalms as a whole, uh, models for us a certain kind of mature faith. Um, and uh, at this time of year especially it's worth remembering what a mature Jewish faith looks like. Tov Todarabah and they shana tova Israel bye-bye.
2: Thank you to all of uh, the participants as well uh, for contributing, and um, there's still uh, six classes this week, <laughs> and there are going to be um, a smattering of classes during Tishrei two uh, between the Chagim, so uh, you can find out about those at elul.drisha.org, and uh, hope to see you again
0: soon. Thank you so much. Thanks,
1: Bye-bye. Shana tova.
0: Bye.